WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. The North Carolina General Assembly entering the final stretch of its legislative session. Republican leaders able to push through a lot of legislation thanks to a supermajority both in the House and the Senate. Lawmakers able to get 50 different pieces of legislation into law. That includes 12-week restrictions on abortion, legalizing mobile sports betting, and authorizing gun owners to get a permit without going through the sheriff's office. And now, one of the most powerful lawmakers in the state is here to help preview what's still to come. Joining us now is the top leader in the North Carolina Senate, Phil Berger. He's held that position for some 13 years. Senator, welcome to Flashpoint. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. All right, so with the countdown to the end of the session, um, looming in your mind as the Senate leader, what is your top priority for, for the General Assembly? Uh, clearly, the top priority at this point is to uh, get the budget taken care of and to uh, make sure that uh, we've uh, addressed those funding issues that uh, that are needed and uh, as part of that, uh, to uh, take another step as far as tax relief for the people of North Carolina. Uh, what else has to happen with the budget? I, mean, I, I know Medicaid expansion was tied into that, and, and that was um, a, a big step for, for not only Republicans, but also for, for the state of North Carolina. Um, but I know the, the governor himself has, has expressed quite a bit of displeasure with the budget as it current stands otherwise. Uh, what else has to happen as far as trying to find some agreement and compromise? Yeah, so right now uh, we've uh, we've had our appropriations chairs, both the House and the Senate, working to uh, address kind of the individual line items as far as appropriations are concerned. Uh, they also were, are working on uh, what are called provisions. Uh, those are explanatory provisions or parts of the budget that um, help uh, articulate how the dollars uh, that are being appropriated are uh, to be administered. Uh, the big issues that are out there now is we have uh, a fairly significant amount of what we call one-time money. Uh, and uh, uh, that money currently is uh, allocated to certain reserves. So for instance, we have a water and sewer uh, reserve. We have uh, a transportation reserve. We have uh, uh, a state capital infrastructure uh, fund uh, that is a reserve. And so uh, we, uh, we are still working on reaching agreement uh, with reference to exactly how much money goes into each of those reserves. And then we'll work on uh, exactly uh, how those uh, reserve dollars get allocated out of that reserve. Uh, that's one of the um, matters that we're still trying to resolve. The other has to do with the tax package uh, and uh, precisely what sort of tax uh, relief, uh, tax policy we're going to see in the budget. Uh, also in the news this week, uh, the Senate passing sweeping changes when it comes to election laws, including some changes for, for voter registration and deadlines for absentee ballots. Um, I, I know people have said in the past it's to prevent fraud, but it seems like fraud is kind of a, a non-issue. However, it does strike me like that absentee ballot thing, you know, the deadline having to be, you know, election day and not three or four days later when we all have to wait around. That to me, I think is, is a, a winning argument to a lot of folks because it just doesn't make sense of having to wait around. Um, is it to you a fraud issue or is it just makes more uh, uh, more common sense? 
Yeah, so I think it's a confidence issue. Uh, the, uh, the the whole thing uh, to me uh, is about what steps can we take uh, to enhance the confidence that people have in election outcomes. You, you know, we've seen situations where in uh, 2016, uh, the Democrats uh, were uh, expressing concerns about whether or not Donald Trump actually won or uh, Hillary Clinton won. Uh, and so uh, in 2020, the, uh, the many Republicans were concerned about uh, and expressed uh, uh, doubts about whether or not the outcomes uh, were uh, were accurate so it's you know it's sort of a bipartisan thing that folks have uh, have uh, indicated questions about elections and so what we need to do is uh, set up our election machinery in a way that enhances confidence not uh, erodes confidence and uh, if uh, as you said uh, if you have a situation where ballots keep coming in days and uh, at least uh, in North Carolina the way the Democrats on the Board of Elections did it uh, last time over a week after Election Day that does not enhance uh, confidence and some would say and I would uh, tend to agree that it has the potential to erode confidence in the outcome uh, the Senate also looking to strip the, some power from the governor and shift it to the General Assembly when it comes to picking members of the State Board of Elections you just mentioned. Uh, I chatted with Pat McCrory last week on this show and asked him about that. I want you to take a listen to his response. I do not support efforts to strip more power from the governor. One day, we Republicans will regret that when uh, a new Republican gets into the governor's office. I believe in separation of powers and the authority of the executive branch to do the day-to-day -day operations of uh, government at the federal level and the state level. Is he wrong? Is, is this being short-sighted for next time there's uh, Democratic control of the General, General Assembly? I don't think it's being short-sighted, uh, and I do think he's wrong. Uh, what what we are doing is uh, setting up, or at least uh, making ch changes that are fully consistent with the Constitution of North Carolina. And just because a former governor or a group of former governors think uh, that uh, the the governor's office ought to have uh, a, a certain amount of power, that doesn't mean the Constitution says that. Uh, and so uh, we believe, uh, and uh, we'll see, because I'm sure there'll be uh, lawsuits filed, uh, we'll see whether or not uh, what we are doing uh, will be viewed by the courts as consistent. And uh, I, I think it is. I think actually if you read through the cases that uh, generally are cited as um, uh, by Governor McCrory and other governors, uh, it is very clear uh, that uh, both Republicans and Democrats on the state Supreme Court uh, have uh, have said that uh, the power to appoint is not under our Constitution an executive function exclusively. And uh, so we have multiple instances of boards that uh, that make decisions uh, that the governor is, uh, is, you know, is not the person that is in direct control. Still come here on Flashpoint, Senator Berger weighing in on trying to find good faith compromise on deeply divisive issues like gender. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Our conversation now continues with top North Carolina Senator Phil Berger. I want to talk about school vouchers. Um, the, the bill passed both the House and the Senate, now working out budget issues, I believe. Um, critics argue that, that there's not a lot of accountability in, in some of these private or charter schools. Um, and unlike public schools, they can turn away students for, for random reasons. Um, 
What do you say to those critics that say, even if they believe in, in these vouchers, that there needs to be more accountability if we're going to send uh, public school students to some of these schools? Yeah, so um, I believe that the best accountability uh, is the accountability that comes with parental involvement uh, and uh, that parents are in a better position than anybody, better position than, uh, than a, a bureaucrat somewhere, better uh, position than a school superintendent somewhere to know what's best for that parent's child. And so uh, while I'm sympathetic to, and we're looking at uh, options to, uh, to, to uh, require or at least uh, have administered some uh, tests that are nationally normed, uh, even in the private schools that receive vouchers, uh, I don't think that's necessary uh, to have the kind of accountability that uh, that we need. Re remember, uh, we uh, we currently have a situation as far as the traditional public schools where many people are just trapped based on the fact that they live at a particular uh, address and. Uh, not everybody, in fact, most people don't have the wherewithal to uh, sell their house or to move from one place to another if their child is in a school or is assigned to a school that does not meet that child's, uh, that child's needs. Uh, and so uh, wealthy people have always had the, uh, the ability to uh, opt out of the traditional public system to put their child uh, in the school that best fits uh, their child's needs. Uh, and I think that's uh, something that every parent should have the right to do. You, you, a lot of folks talk about public schools failing. Um, and I spoke to a, a group of teachers this past weekend. It does feel like sometimes the, our teachers are sometimes being set up for failure. Now, I know the teachers union is probably not one of your favorite groups, but I mean, for the average public school teacher out there, um, do you feel like the state has their back? So I think the uh, the state uh, is supportive. Uh, the state legislature clearly is supportive of uh, teachers in the traditional public schools. I, I do think that in many instances, the uh, administrative uh, control of the uh, public schools makes decisions that make the schools less safe uh, for teachers, make the schools uh, less uh, uh, able to uh, have the kind of environment where learning uh, can take place. And I think many teachers recognize that. And while we want to make sure that we pay our teachers uh, a, uh, an appropriate, uh, fair and competitive wage, uh, we also uh, need to do a better job of making sure that the environment that uh, teachers in the public schools uh, are working in is one that is safe for them, conducive to learning, uh, and uh, uh, an environment that uh, children will succeed in. The current Senate bill uh, would ban any healthcare professional in the state from providing any, any gender affirming medical care to anybody under the age of 18. Um, these interventions are very rare, um, and leading medical groups support them when they are necessary. But all that aside, you just said parents know best when it comes to their kids and not bureaucrats. Couldn't you make that exact same argument when it comes to parents of transgender kids looking to get the medical care they feel like their kids need? So the question is, how absolute uh, do you want that, uh, that to be? Do you, do you want parents to have the absolute right to make any decision, uh, even if it harms the child? Uh, I, I think we've uh, we, we've got uh, a long history of uh, recognizing that in some instances uh, the parents uh, are not making good decisions. Uh, in some instances, 
uh, parents uh, make destructive decisions. In some instances, parents abuse their children. Uh, and so uh, all we're trying to do here is say that if you have a minor, that uh, you will not have surgery on a minor that changes that minor's sex from male to female or female to uh, to male. That you will not uh, have uh, the um, the administration of uh, drugs that have the effect of impairing and inhibiting the natural growth and development of a child. Now, once a once a child gets to be 18, if they make a decision. They've reached the age of majority. They have uh, the uh, appropriate maturity to make those kinds of decisions. Adults can make those sorts of decisions. But uh, to, uh, to make that decision for a child that has that kind of permanent impact on their physical and mental health uh, is something that, uh, that we don't think is appropriate and we think needs to be stopped. I, I would still make the case that, that your word here, bureaucrats, um, no better in certain circumstances than parents, but not, but not in others. But I, I, I will not belabor the point there. Um, one more question on the trans uh, uh, community and the athletes. Um, the Senate voted 31 to 17 to ban trans girls from playing sports, uh, sports teams that align with their gender identity. Um, and admittedly, I think when you talk to anybody about this, this is a, a difficult uh, topic that, that, that doesn't have a clear solution that happened, that makes all groups happy. But I mean, have, have you spoken with members of the trans community about the right way to address this issue, trying to find some sort of good faith compromise here? So there's um, uh, th there's division uh, in uh, in our society about this issue. Uh, I've talked with uh, uh, female athletes uh, who are very concerned about uh, whether or not there's fairness in women's sports. Uh, if a biological male is allowed to uh, compete uh, in events uh, that uh, involve speed or strength uh, or size. And, uh, and, and so uh, I, I think if we want to have uh, competitive women's athletics, uh, if we want to have women's athletics where uh, biological females uh, have the ability to compete on a level playing field, uh, then we cannot allow men to compete against them. And make no mistake about it, a transgender female is a biological male, and, uh, and it's just not fair. I want to talk about what's been accomplished when it comes to uh, that 12-week abortion plan, uh, ban. Uh, do you expect that there will be further restrictions down the road that, that Republicans want to pass in Raleigh? Uh, there uh, are no further restrictions that I'm aware of that uh, uh, that are going to move forward in this General Assembly. Obviously, we have an election every two years. I uh, don't know what the makeup of the General Assembly will be uh, after the next election, but uh, I certainly don't uh, uh, see uh, amongst my members uh, the, uh, the number of uh, people uh, who would be necessary in order to uh, pass uh, a, uh, a bill that makes further changes as far as those laws are concerned. Your colleague over in the House, Tim Moore, involved in a bit of a scandal right now. Uh, I'm not gonna ask you to weigh in on your colleague's scandal because I know you don't want to, but uh, the, the whole alienation of affection thing has come up. Uh, do you think that's an antiquated law on the books that should be changed? Uh, I have uh, been supportive of keeping uh, the um, uh, alienation of affections uh, and criminal conversation uh, torts uh, in our law. Uh, I believe that uh, yeah, they are uh, 
things that protect or at least uh, recognize the sanctity of a marriage. And uh, I don't see a need to make that change. Uh, the GOP a couple of weeks ago censuring your, your old colleague, Tom, Tom Tillis. Um, do you agree with that move? Um, I, I've never been in favor of uh, what, uh, for all practical purposes, uh, would be a circular firing squad. Uh, I, uh, I, I think uh, we, we advertise the Republican Party, and I believe it is, a, as a big tent. Uh, and uh, I think what that means is that uh, there are going to be times that uh, elected officials may not agree uh, with, uh, with some members of the party. Uh, I just think that's uh, that's part of what uh, a healthy party would be. Uh, and uh, if I had been a delegate at the convention, I would not have voted in favor of that. Uh, a final question. Um, I know you had appeared at, a, at an event for Mark Robinson when he announced for governor. Um, are, are you planning to, to formally endorse him and support him in, in the primary? I'm, I'm not prepared to uh, make an endorsement at this time. I have told anyone who asked that I think uh, Lieutenant Governor Robinson would make a very good governor. I think he's got uh, he's got the right talents and uh, uh, the right uh, uh, philosophic, uh, philosophical uh, leanings uh, to be a very good governor for the state of North Carolina. Senate President Phil Berger. Senator, thanks for coming on. We appreciate your time. Sure, thank you. All right, take care. A Where's the Money investigation coming up after the break. Welcome back to Flashpoint. The city of Charlotte working to fix a, a costly mistake. That error happened early in the pandemic and cost a local nonprofit more than $230,000. That's a lot of money for a nonprofit. That money would have helped small businesses in University City and would have gone unnoticed had WCNC Charlotte not double-checked the city's math. In direct response to Nate Morabito's investigation, the city is now working to make things right. Nate's now asking, where's the money? At the upcoming Charlotte City Council meeting Monday, leaders are expected to approve a $230,000 grant the city should have given to University City Partners in 2020. The district's council representative told us not only is the city working to make this right, there's a better process now in place to make sure a mistake like this doesn't happen again. September 2020, six months into a pandemic that kept people home. The crowd is not as large as it was in the past. Here we go. And left small business owners fighting for survival. I'm glad they still move forward with it. University City Partners worked to keep Charlotte's second largest employment hub alive. We have small businesses that are so critical. University City Partners did its part. They were doing great work. Without a $237,000 grant, the city should have awarded the nonprofit. There was a human error, and we're going to make it up to them. Council member Renee Perkins Johnson and others at City Hall only learned of that error after WCNC Charlotte discovered it. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. <laughs> As part of our detailed review of the city's federally funded small business support grant program, we found three other organizations that secured a combined $430,000 in grants despite scoring lower on their applications, eventually blamed on a human error in calculation when adding up the score sheets. I'm the biggest cheerleader for District 4. Perkins Johnson sits on University City Partners Board and says she advocated for the nonprofit once she found out about the city's mistake. What do you want the taxpayers to know? I want them to know that I ran on public accountability. 
um, and, and, and I'm consistently fighting for that. So that's important to me, that's important to all of council, and we're gonna make this right. Perkins Johnson says while the organizations that receive the money still use the funds for the right purpose of sustaining small business, city staff have assured her there are additional checks and balances in place. We're gonna have more than two people now reviewing those numbers. To make sure public dollars are better protected in the future. So where's the city finding the extra money to correct this error? The plan is to use federal dollars through the American Rescue Plan Act. Nate Morabito, WCNC Charlotte. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint, folks. Come interact with us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're there. If there's something you want us to talk about here on Flashpoint, somebody you want us to interview, let us know. And as always, remember to listen and subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you get yours. And we'll see you back here next weekend.